This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. It's the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson. Okay, I'm here with Michael Shao. I just asked you how to pronounce it because it's spelled differently than that. Do you get that a lot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much every time. So yeah. that was perfect, by the way. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> You're author and entrepreneur. I was reading somewhere that you found success at the age of 15. What in the world were you doing at 15 <laughs> on success? I, I know it, well, it was totally unintentional because uh, I was on this trip to my father's from Germany. He's from this little town called Solingen. It's that town is famous for making anything out of steel. Uh, so you give Germans, you know, this steel, they'll make something beautiful and functional out of it. And so I was there and I was 15 year old kid and I wanted to find this authentic, uh, authentically forged sword. Um, and so I was on this hunt with my cousin and we were, this was pre-internet and pre-Google and all that. So we couldn't just search. So we had to like look through the phone book and we found this blacksmith, um, who had been there for hundreds of years. His firm had been there for hundreds of years. And we kind of went down to this dungeon, like warehouse and, and, or factory. And, uh, you know, it was real for a 15 year old kid. It was amazing because there were like these big blocks of steel dropping on other steel and flames and smoke and all this stuff. And, and uh, so this big German guy, about I don't know, he seemed like seven foot tall or something. He came up to me, handlebar mustache, grease stained apron, and and he couldn't speak much English, but he he wanted to know, okay, why is this kid disturbing me from my work? Yeah. <laughs> so my cousin explained, okay, well he's this kid from Canada, and and he came over there to find you, find a sword, and and I guess this guy was so touched by uh, me coming there and finding him that he pulled this sword, beautiful blade, but uh, from behind his desk. And he just handed it to me and he said, he said, a gift for you. And I was so touched by that moment. And then, but then he asked me, um, you know, a question that changed my life. He said, do you think anyone else where you're from would like my swords in North America? And I thought, you know, as a 15 year old kid, I thought, yeah, hell yes. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, exactly. so I kind of devised this whole plan in my mind uh, on the whole plane ride back and everything that I was going to sell these swords. And and when I got back, I presented the idea to um, to my parents and they, you know, fortunately, they kind of support me with oftentimes my wild ideas. And and they said, yeah, OK, we can, you know, we'll have to register your business. So I was too young to drive. But my mom, she drove me around to get all these things done. I love know, that you're business. too young to drive. But you're starting a business, you know, <laughs> yeah, with swords. <laughs> right. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so and then my dad would, you know, I borrowed one of his old ties and he dropped me off and he'd say, you know, OK, I'll see you in an hour. And and I went in into, you know, these stores and and would try and sell these swords and and I, I never sold a sword, right? I never sold one, but, but I, I learned a lot about business because I had no idea about business before that. And, um, and what was happening though in that little town back in Germany was that people like these other companies were starting to learn about this operation in North America, this import operation. So I started getting all, sent to me all these different samples like manicure sets and sewing scissors, hairdressing scissors, kitchen knives, hunting knives, all these different steel made products from this town. And I thought, okay, well, I'll start 
trying to sell this stuff. And, and that stuff actually, you know, would actually go, it was actually going well. Um, and then one day I got this big box of stainless steel designer kitchenware and at 15 years old kitchen, anything to do with the kitchen was very uninteresting to me, <laughs> but right. my dad, my dad said, he's like, well, why don't you just go and take it to a, you know, a couple of kitchen stores and see what they think. Um, anyway, uh, long story short, I was like the first one to bring designer stainless steel kitchenware into Canada. So <laughs> crazy. And so the business went through the roof and, uh, yeah, my dad came out of retirement. Um, we turned their garage into uh, a warehouse. I hired a sales rep and, you know, so it, it had a good run. Like it went, um, for a few years and I learned a lot about myself and business and, and all of that, but that was kind of my first foray into entrepreneurship, I guess you could say. It all started with swords. I would have never imagined. (laughs) (laughs) So where did you go after that? Once you've started that journey of being an entrepreneur, what did you end up doing? Well, I, so it's kind of a, yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, my dream, I'll I'll tell you this. My dream was to become a creative writer when I was that age, when I thought that was going to be my life path. Right. Um, And so all throughout high school, you know, writing stories, short stories, essays was my favorite thing. And so I, I remember, um, you know, my first experience in university and I was, again, had this dream to become this creative writer. And, and I, I got this essay to that, which said, you know, uh, like write about a place in the outdoors, which has impacted you deeply. Okay. And I thought, oh, this is like the assignment of my dreams. Right. I love the outdoors. I love the mountains. I love mountain climbing. So I just poured my heart into it. I think I wrote the best piece I had ever written. Um, looked over it twice, three times and handed it in a week later, got the piece of paper back. And and when I got it back, um, there was this letter on it, which was so foreign to me. I didn't actually know what it was at first. And uh, it was an F. (laughs) I I failed my first essay, my first assignment at university. Um, And so that was basically the beginning of the end of my interest in taking creative writing because... Yeah. What was happening was um, that was also the time where my business was taking off. Right. So right. while I was kind of struggling, well, I, I basically felt like every the whole creative writing program at university was trying to shove me in a box. And then the more I looked into this business faculty, um, the more I discovered that it was all about creating the box. You know, here's your blank canvas. You know, we're innovating. We're changing the world. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're entrepreneurs. And, and that to me was really exciting. And because my business was doing well, I was, I, you know, it was something I discovered I was, I was fairly good at. So anyway, I pivoted into that. But, um, but yeah, where that, where that went afterwards um, was uh, I started looking at, you know, why some companies are, do better than others and what makes a great company and why do some, you know, sort of survive the test of time and, and, uh, and that kind of got me interested in, in investing. Um, and so my mom, you know, I, I think I was too young at the time, but she opened me one of those online trading accounts <laughs> you know, where you could trade yeah. your own. And then, you know, and so I was found that I, that was something that I was good at. So that kind of pulled me into, uh, into that kind of direction. Well, I love that you I actually have never heard that term create the box. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. I've never thought about starting businesses as being something where you're actually just creating the box. You don't have to live in a box, but you're creating it. I love that. Totally, yeah. yeah. But you didn't abandon your creative writing because I found you because of a book called A Story of Karma, Finding mm-hmm. Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. And so you've mentioned two things so far. You've said the creative writing and then your love for mountain climbing. So mm-hmm. I want to know why do you climb? Because to me, I don't have this desire. It's kind of scary to me, honestly. And it seems very intense. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you get from that experience? Yeah, something that I've been doing. Well, I was always into the outdoors and into nature growing up on the West Coast here. Uh, We have got lots of mountains around us. But um, I remember, you know, when I was around 17 years old, I met this one experienced mountaineer and he took me up this mountain um, and he, you know, I had no idea what I was doing at that age, but he lent me his crampons, the spikes that you put on your boots and, and an ice axe and the harness and all that stuff. And we went out, um, climbed this mountain. And I remember like, as we got towards the top of the peak, um, it was this very steep sort of icy snow slope. And I remember looking over my shoulder and on the distant horizon were all these kind of peaks of the sunrise was just coming up and all these peaks were being illuminated in like these purplish pink, orange hues uh, and I just, I just struck me in my core. And I thought, you know, there's this whole world up here that's out of our sight, out of our day-to-day lives. 
and it's only accessible by our will to climb. Mm. And, and that to me was just it. I never looked back. I just dove into mountain climbing with full intensity. And, you know, I, I guess you could say that um, my relationship with the mountains has changed over the years. You know, when I was younger, uh, it was much more about, you know, getting out there, you know, the intensity, like the summits, all that stuff. But um, now it's, I mean, I love getting out into nature. I still have the goal of getting up to the top of things, but, um, but it's not about that. It's about the journey. It's about who I'm with, you know, the company, the depth of the experience, uh, you know, who I become along the way. So it's much more about just being out there. I, like, I don't have that same drive to like, you know, I got to get you know <laughs> to the top of something. Yeah. Well, I mentioned the book and in the book, you start talking about all the climbs that you're doing and then the ultimate climb of climbing the Valley of the Himalaya. But you... Mm. Um, talk about climbing as a spiritual experience. And I was, I had took, I took a picture of something your friend said. Um, you said, you wrote, Joe wasn't religious, but he was deeply spiritual. He once said, it's better to be in the mountains thinking about God than to be in the church thinking about the mountains. And Mm -hmm. I, I loved that. And you said, when I'm climbing, the mountain is a part of me and I'm a part of the mountain. It just becomes a spiritual experience. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? For sure. Yeah, for sure. And that's not to take anything about away about going to church or anything, but uh, for those, <laughs> but, um, but Joe, you know, he's, so he's the one that took me up the mountain that first time. But, um, but what I noticed the more I got out there was that, you know, and I, what I mean by that, you know, we are part of nature is that, you know, we are nature, right. And the more we connect with it and have that very visceral experience, the more we connect actually with ourselves, um, you know, so the being out there in nature, it heightens the sensitivities it opens the awareness. It connects me with myself, um, connects me with others. Um, so I think just practicing that awareness by being out there has, um, yeah, has shaped me into who I am uh, today. Do you have one lesson you could take away? I know this is such a broad question, <laughs> but do you have one lesson that you could take away from your actual climbing experiences as a spiritual journey Um of something that you just will never forget. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, well, there's two things that just sort of pop into my mind. Um, One is this idea that we are just such a small part of the big picture, right? Totally, Um, yes. I I think, you know, we all have our own lives and and we've got our own things that we're doing and and very busy and whatnot. But, and so we can somehow, sometimes we can put the blinders on to think that Mm -hmm. that's the way life is. But, But being out there in the mountains, it's kind of a, a reminder that we're actually like this tiny, tiny, tiny speck in this much larger complex picture that's moving and shaping all the time. And, and, and I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind, right. Just to, to, to help not put those blinders on, which was an important point to, you know, where the conversation will go in terms of what happened in the Himalaya. Um, but then the other thing that, that I would say just comes to mind is um this idea that uh, to, to not get too tied into expectations, mm. um, you know, to adapt yeah. with, you know, sometimes, you know, how we have an idea that we get so fixated on and, and, and it doesn't really matter where that idea comes from. I mean, it could come from our, our society, like our community, it can, could come from our parents or the values that we were raised with. But sometimes we get so fixated on this idea that this is what our life should look like. And then, you know, how often does, that align with reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there, the gap between reality and expectation is where suffering happens. Mm-hmm. So what the mountains have taught me, it's a lot about, yeah, okay, it's okay to go out with a goal or an intention, but just don't get too attached to the outcome, right? Be kind of fluent, be mm-hmm. fluid, be um, uh, sort of be prepared to adapt as, as whatever happens, you know, uh, evolves, right? Not just be fixated on, Oh, I got to do this one thing. Yeah. I have a friend who describes that as just stay in the flow. Like you said, it's good mm-hmm. to have the intentions to set your goals, but to know that, I mean, life is still going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's, that's been, I would say that's the other big lesson from the mountains I've, I've practiced over the years. Yeah. I love that. I get the same feeling when I go anywhere near the ocean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's so big and so vast. And then I see these creatures that I don't see, you know, like, like a squirrel just ran by me and I don't see those. I don't see whales every day, like I would in an ocean. And so it makes you feel so small to have that experience. I love that feeling actually. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a good reminder of the world we live in, right? I mean, just that there's yeah. so much beauty, so much goodness, so much, you know, whatever out there. And it's important to, yeah, to not get too granular in our, yes. in the way we live. I find it very hopeful too, because it's just, there's mm. so much, there's yeah. never ending supply of stuff, you know, yeah, we're good. Yeah. We're, we live in abundance. <laughs> we do. We do. Um, I love that you and your wife, Chantel, correct. Mm. Y'all do this together, which I think mm. is such an awesome bonding experience. I can imagine, but um, I do want to speak specifically of your journey in the Himalaya that you guys went on together because y'all have done many climbs, I think is what you said in the book, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this one in particular seemed a little different though, especially from her experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chantal, she's, uh, she's wonderful. Like she, um, she was, you know, she loves the outdoors and but for her, when we met, uh, when we started dating, she wasn't really she didn't have that intensity of needing to climb like I yeah. did back then. Yeah. And we were you know, younger back then, but, um, but, but she loved getting out in the mountains. Right. So, so and she's quite strong. So she kind of, you know, would start climbing these bigger peaks um, and she would set her own objectives in terms of, you know, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, for example, in Tanzania and, um, and Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. Um, so think, you know, these big mountains. And I thought, you know, I mean, you don't need to twist my arm to climb anything, but and so, and, but you know, the great thing about Chantal is that she, um, she always wanted to kind of do these big expeditions, not only for herself, right. Cause climbing can be very, um, you know, very solo or selfish thing, but she wanted to do it for others. Right. So she yeah. thought, you know, can we, can we maybe raise some money through these things or can we help, you know, others who can't get out there into nature. And so we, that's what we started doing. And, and then it led to uh, back in, this was back in 2011. It led to that meeting with mm -hmm. that gentleman, Mick um, in the restaurant. And he had just come back from Nepal. Uh, he'd been trekking in Nepal off and on for over 20 years. Uh, and he went into like some of the most obscure valleys like just the offshoots the places that people didn't really know um and he so he had just come back and and he you know he kind of saw my passion about nepal right i don't know you know i didn't know at that time but i'm just like nepal was this place that was very deeply rooted inside of me i just had to go there and so he said mike i gotta i gotta tell you about this little valley called the lost valley of narfu and uh and then he kept talking about it but i had already tuned out because I was like, you had me at lost. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to twist your arm. <laughs> yeah. um, and then Chantal, you know, she was there and she was kind of, you know, he kept, he, he was looking at, we were looking at the pictures and, and Chantal was getting into it. We thought, wow, these are pictures like, um, you know, this is something I didn't know that places like that still existed in the world because these, this Valley had been uh, closed off to the outside world for generations and, um, and it had just been opened up a few years before that. Um, but the people there, when, you, we, when we were looking at the pictures, they looked like, you know, the, the same way that they had been living for the last 800 years, right? Um, you know, in that valley, there's, yeah, no electricity, no, at that time, no, not even any toilets, um, you know, days away from the nearest road, no healthcare or outside education or anything like that. The people are semi-nomadic, um, you know, moving with the seasons and, and, you know, all their own stuff, like their clothes and food, you know, a lot of that, most of that they, they're self-sufficient with. So, um, yeah, no communication with the outside world. So it's just, um, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then Mick, he also said that because now the Valley was open, um, it was going to be experiencing some unprecedented change. So, you know, because now people, more people will go in and, right. and, you know, so I thought, well, let's, um, Chantal and I, we kind of put our heads together. We thought, well, let's, let's put a little team together of artists, a musician, a photographer, a nature artist. Um, and, and we'll see if we can learn and observe from the people there and sort of capture a moment in time, you know, before things change too much. Um, so that was kind of, you know, what the seed of the, the whole expedition there. Um, but, and then I came across that picture of that, this pyramid mountain, <laughs> which was like this white pyramid coming out of the earth. Uh, and I thought that just was it for me. I thought, I have to go. To go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got to go try and find this and climb this. Yeah. And then I was, it was interesting to me though, that you guys have done this before. And then as you started on the journey, which I want to hear more about the group that you guys did travel with, but as you started on the journey, she started to get 
fairly like exhausted, migraines, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Why was this experience so different for her than your experience? Because you were thriving, right? Right. So right you're yeah. like, this is living yeah. my best life. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I think, you know, with Chantal, well, one thing with Chantal is that she has been getting, um, sure, she had been getting um, these severe migraine attacks since, since she was very young. And, um, and it, she didn't understand why at that time, but, um, but later in life, she kind of figured it out that it was actually a, um, a stress response. Right. And mm. I mean, I've never had a migraine attack like that, but I think a lot of people have. And yeah, and those, I get them. They're terrible. Do, do you, yeah. yeah terrible. It's like you just have to lie down, right. For yeah, days you're, you're down for the count. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so Chantal, um, she would get these attacks from time to time and, and she just happened to get one while we were out there uh, and we were out there. We we're going to be out there for weeks. Right. Um, and we were in the middle of the mountains at that point, we were just coming into that lost Valley um, a few days in, and she gets hit with one of these like severe, severe migraines, migraine attacks. And, and I had seen her, I mean, this was one of the bad ones. Like I had seen her like that before where her just almost like her shoulders, like her entire, mm-hmm. the muscles on her spine, just everything ceases up and, you know, just, just pounding right in the head and she can't eat otherwise it would make her vomit and yeah, all this stuff. Right. So I'm just like, Oh my goodness. So we, um, we, I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought, you know, are we going to like, are we going to have to turn around? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I thought this might be the end of the road for me. Um, I didn't know. I didn't really talk about it with the team because I thought, you know, there's, I, I just didn't want to scare everybody at that point. And, you know, just the fact that we might have to go back and, uh, and whether we'd have to like split everything up, but, um, but I knew that there was this little place where we could rest for two days. And, um, and I thought, you know, let's just go there and see how Chantal does. And unfortunately she was able to, to kind of fight through it and, and get better. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was a, yeah, it was a tough experience. I mean, I think she, at that point we had come off, you know, a couple big expeditions and a lot of climbing. And I think she just wanted to sit in a beach chair somewhere. Yes, <laughs> I, was just, I was just about to get to that point because I first of all found a dynamic between just how different the experiences were for the both of you. Like you were getting energized by the climb and just the surroundings. And I just understand that dynamic so much of being in the space where you're like, yeah, this is cool and all, but like, I'm dying here, like, this is, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and I loved what she said though, because the migraine is a physical sensation, but what she was experiencing, like you said, was a stress response. And so she said, um, I wrote down the quote here. She said, you know, I feel like I'm always driving at a new goal, a new mountain, a new challenge. And my true self has known for the past three years that what I truly need is a few weeks in a lawn chair with a book to read and all that stuff that she knew she realized it was her ego driving her. And I just think the the body mind connection is so fascinating that it would respond that way. It's it's huge. It's everything, right? That Uh, that whole connection. And, And I think tapping into that, because sometimes what she even found was you know, stress, we, we sometimes we look at it as a negative thing, right? Right. But stress can also be from a positive, like if you get overexcited, I mean, for example, yeah. if she was out partying uh, or having like a big social event or something that yeah. can also drive her nervous system into, you know, this stress response, right. And then cause a yeah. migraine and to shut everything down. So yeah, it's just, but back then we didn't know that. Right. So right. we were trying to manage that uh, as best as we could. Yeah. But this is another example of what an actual, just a climb on a mountain can teach you so much about life in general and about our bodies and just our mental capacity for certain things or why we're doing what we're doing. I just think the whole spiritual aspect behind all of this is so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, it, yeah, you're right. It kind of opens up those deeper, um, you know, that, that deeper awareness of connecting with your true self, like, you know, like you, like you read there in the passage, like, okay, well, what, what do I really want? Like, what does my soul want? Right. Not what does my head want? But like, what is my soul? What, what is good for my soul right now? And I think that's that's an important thing to look at. So, how did you shake? Because, uh, sorry, I'm fascinated by this dynamic for relationships. How did you shake the like? Wait, 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 wait. We can't stop because like your soul was being fed, right? And so, of course, you would want to continue. How would you not resent your partner in that capacity or that situation? Well, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I was struggling, right, for for at least two or day, two days while it was while everything was going going on, and um, and I remember there was this one moment where 
we stopped in this one little settlement where, um, where we were going to stay for those two days. And, and I was out there walking under the night sky and mm-hmm. I was just kind of like thinking, Oh, what's going to happen here. And, and it was the most beautiful night sky I'd ever seen. You know, you could see the galaxy, just the, you know, the purplish hues of the, the Milky way and the planets pulsated and all that. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the the farthest I'm going to get here in this, in this Valley. And, and then, and then what was happening though, our, our group, like our little group there, they started playing this song uh, that I could hear from the tent because it was totally quiet. So they were, they were right. like blaring out this music of um, this, um, I don't know if you know the band Blue Rodeo. It's this kind yeah. of country rock. Okay, <laughs> okay. I'm in a country. I like it. <laughs> okay. Um, Blue Rodeo. It's the song's called Lost Together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the lyrics, you know, one of the lyrics goes, uh, if we're lost, then we're all lost together. Mm. And, um, and I thought, you know what? Maybe that's true. Like maybe there's no point in me stressing about what's going to happen here. We're all lost here in a way in this valley. Um I mean, not physically lost, but just, you know, kind of figuring ourselves out. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that's okay because we're together. Uh, and so I thought, you know, as long as we sort of stick together, then, then that's, that's the important thing. Mm. And we're having this beautiful experience here. And if I, if this is it, if this night is it with these people, uh, some good friends here or people who've become good friends, I mean, this is much farther than I've ever made it before. Mm. So I'm like, I'm okay with that. And if mm. we have to go down, you know, we'll go down. Yeah. I've read a lot about the different relationships you kind of got through on your way. And I want to talk a little bit about the group. Like I said, I do feel like you are a kindred spirit of mine and the value that you place on human connection. Like that as such a teacher for me is what I learned from other people. That's why I love doing these interviews is just because connecting with someone on any sort of spiritual level, it's constantly teaching me something about myself, you know? So tell us about the group that you guys decided to climb with. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it was funny because uh, it was a total mashup, right? I mean, if right. you put us next, uh, you know, we had this, um, this cowboy, uh, you know, he'd wear like this brown cowboy hat with his handlebar mustache. And, and then this musician, you know, he's kind of like a neo hippie with blonde hair wrapped in a purple bandana and goatee and, and, you know, this Polish professor. But, you know, but we were all drawn there with this kind of vision of going into this place and, and, and sort of, you know, looking at it or, or observing it through our own unique artistic lenses. Right. Um, so I think we kind of found, even though we were very different, we didn't really know each other that well beforehand. Um, but, uh, but coming together, sort of united by this common vision, um, was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty special group for sure. And I think that's yeah. part of what, what, um, what also helped Chantal get through that because, you know, we were just there lighthearted, you know, again, like you mentioned, connecting very deeply mm-hmm. on that human level and, and, and that does something to us, right. When we can yeah. do that, I think it's yeah. feeling. Well, you may have already answered this question, this next question too, when you were telling about, um, them playing the song and what that, you know, kind of brought out for you, but was there one big takeaway from those relationships that you formed? And after like going through such an intense experience together that you still think about today? Um, well, it definitely influenced, it began there. Um, but it definitely influenced the importance I place on, on human connection. Mm. Um, because like I mentioned earlier, you know, the climb for me, it was more so about, you know, the very sort of intense experience of climbing something very physical, very, you know, sort of, um, you know, like all my senses were kind of working at it, but like being there with that special group of people, not only there, but, you know, in, in other instances as well, it just kind of allowed me to, to think about, you know, what is actually really important here in life. And I think, you know, this idea of connecting very deep with people, um, mm. having that experience, like that depth of experience, right? Um, nothing can replace that. Like, that's what life is about, is about mm-hmm. connecting deeply with others and, and, and kind of, you know, seeing them for who they are and, mm. and them seeing you for who you are, I think is, uh, you know, without that sort of that judgment or pretense or anything like that, I think that's what makes life so, so beautiful. Oh, that one got me a little choked up. <laughs> <laughs>
If you know anything about me, you know I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found Cozy Earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. (laughs) Well, I wonder, too, before this experience, did you find yourself more drawn to the accomplishment of climbing versus the actual human connection piece of this for sure yeah yeah I, well it's funny that you asked that because if you if you look at the intention that we set when we were going out there it was about yeah. the human connection right yeah um but when i saw that mountain i was the mountain kind of clouded my judgment if you will right it kind of came from that more of that ego place or the small mind or whatever we want to call it and so that kind of clouded this intention that we had set from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came to terms in the, you know, at, in, in the middle of the journey, right? When, when things started blowing up in my face and, and uh, you know, the dream of climbing the mountain was crushed before my eyes and all that stuff. Um, yeah, it just came head to head. Like those, that goal, if we can label it like that, like that goal, ego-driven goal versus intention, uh, life intention, came head to head mm. and literally forced me to make a choice of what, you know, what was more important. The ego and the flow of life do not seem to get along. <laughs> in my <laughs> experience. I lo- so I love the reminder to stay in the flow because anytime the ego for me is driving, I am going to bump up and let against a lot of just explosions. Like you said, right. things, things falling apart and be are feeling like they are. And really they're falling right into place typically, but yeah, yeah. It's hard I mean, to see it that way. You're right. I because I think uh I think when things like that happen, you know, yes, we might be feeling distraught about like why is this being crushed or why is this happening right. this way? But what it also does is it opens up, you know, another way to see things like, okay, well, maybe there's a different way I should be going. Mm. Right. So instead of trying to force against something, maybe there's a gravitational pull into a different direction. And, and that was what was happening there in the mountains. Like everything inside of me was wanting to, you know, go forward to the mountain, but everything outside of me was guiding me in this different direction mm-hmm. and direction. I didn't know where, but, um, but I chose again, I guess we don't want to give too much away in the book, but like I chose to trust in that, 
um, in the, the kind of the, the environment or those um, those six signs, uh, you know, what was happening, what was unfolding in my environment, I chose to trust in that guiding. Um, and it led me to the most beautiful, meaningful experience of my life. But I didn't know that at, at the time, right? At right. the time, I felt like I was in the middle of a tornado or something. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk vaguely about your experience because as we mentioned, we, you and I talked before and I was like, this is the hard part about doing book interviews is because I want people to go read the book. So I don't want to <laughs> give too much away, but I do want to mention, um, you know, there was a lot of people you guys met along your journey that I think sort of influenced or had an impact on your thought process about that specific journey. But the main one was a little girl named Karma. So can you just mm -hmm. describe to the listeners uh, kind of your meeting of Karma? And and I love the fact that that's her name. I mean, what in the world? It's like, how perfect. <laughs> um, but then also just kind of what you learned from meeting her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, well, that was a very... I mean, that was one of the most important encounters of my life. Um, we had, uh, it was actually at the tail end of the journey. And we went to this other, there's two main villages in this whole valley. And one is Fu and the other one is called Nar. And, and Nar was the one that we visited last. And had I gone to the mountain, like had I tried to force the mountain, um, I, I would not have gone there. I just would have bypassed the whole place. But because we had this extra time, I thought, okay, well, let's go visit this this little village called Nar. And, and we, you know, we discovered that they had a little stone school there. Um, everywhere else that we had been in that whole valley over the weeks, um, there were no school, like there was no outside education for these kids. And I learned, I mean, some of the things I had learned was that um, by the time these kids are, are six, five, six years old, they have to start working, you know, in the fields, very hard labor, um, you know, oftentimes girls at the ages at that time at the age of 15 16 they would start getting married you know having their own families um you know infant mortality rates were really high mm -hmm. two out of five children typically died before the age of five. Oh my god um, so so all these things and then i learned there was this also a very important um phrase that i learned from the people there uh which was they rather their kids have a pencil in the hand versus a strap around the forehead because Nepalis, they carry the weight, you know, they don't carry like the backpack we have, they carry it around the forehead. So, so they, they kind of feel like they want their kids to have outside education where, wherever possible, because it just gives them more choice right in life. And so, um, so I had all these thoughts kind of, you know, in my mind floating around and, and we discovered there's this little stone school there. And so I thought, you know, let's go check it out. We get to the school and there's these 17 kids. Um, they had pulled the benches out because it's too cold and dark in the classrooms. And, and so they were in the warmth of the sun and the light of the sun. Um, and at the head of the class was this little seven-year-old girl um, teaching English numbers. And something just kind of struck me about her. I, I don't know what it was. I mean, we had seen hundreds of kids, you know, up until that point. But there was something I almost recognized in a way about her, not, not physically recognized, but energetically recognized mm -hmm. um, something it's that like was kind of like a soul connection. Like, yeah. Like a soul connect, like almost yeah. like fam family, like familial, yeah. right. Um, yeah. that there's like, Whoa, what's going on with this little girl there. And, and the fact that she was teaching was like, okay, that's interesting. And, and uh, anyway, we found the teacher and he was kind of looming in the back and, and we learned that he had kind of come from a totally different part of Nepal and, and he felt like because he was so far away from his own people and, and family, he felt like he um, he was banished to the end of the earth, he told us. Um, so maybe that's why she was up there teaching. But um, but then the kids, they caught sight of the musician. His guitar was slung over his shoulder and they had never seen a guitar before, you know, let alone heard one. Right. Um, so they were kind of you could tell the kids were like, oh, can we, you know, can he play some music? And and Michael, the musician, he's um, you know, he's quite an entertainer. So he gets up there and he starts teaching them some music. And, and before long, these kids are just like getting right into their singing and dancing and, and moving to the music. And, and so, and then I guess the teacher, he got motivated. And so he brought out this little drum and he wanted the kids to line up and dance in front of us one at a time. And which, which was kind of odd. And he started with this little girl who had been so confident in teaching, right? Um, he, he told her to dance. He's like, dance in front of these people. And, um, and you could just see her. She was just like petrified, um, almost internally starting to cry. Um, 
And Chantal, she couldn't take it. And she just marched up there next to this little girl and, uh, and started doing her best impression of this Nepali dance <laughs> with her arms like waving around. And, and Chantal didn't know what she was really doing, but, but the little girl forgot about everybody watching um, and just started focusing. The two of them focused on each other. And just, it was like, almost like these two, if you can imagine, like these two little spirits kind of dancing mm-hmm. <laughs> with each other mm-hmm. um, in front of these like 7,000 meter peaks. And um, it was the most beautiful thing, honestly, <clears throat> that I, you know, that I'd seen. Sorry, we're both crying right now. I'm looking at you. Because I just read the book, so I'm crying. (laughs) You're going to make me cry. Um, uh, um, But um, yeah, and then after that, uh, um, the 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 kids after school got out. The kids found where we were where we were, and and this little girl she came dashing in. Um, just leaped into Chantal's arms um, and gave Chantal, she told me afterwards, like the biggest heart to heart hug she had ever felt. And, uh, and then she turned to me and she leaped into my arms and I'll never forget the moment she, her little hands just like grabbing, you know, the back of my neck and the force of which hit me, it was just like, not the physical force, but just the force of the love. And I just thought, wow, actually it was in that one half a second moment where I thought, the thought came to me that was, which was, uh, this is the reason why I'm here in the Himalaya. And, um, and so that kind of, you know, was the spark that, that sort of set into a whole, you know, <laughs> a whole series of things in motion. Um, and, and this is all back in 2012. Um, but for the next nine years, we've been growing our relationship with we found out the little girl's name is Karma and then her sister Pemba and their family. Um, we've been growing our, our families together um, and just kind of almost co-parenting, right? With their mm-hmm. parents, um, you know, these two worlds coming together because mixed prediction back in the restaurant back in 2011 was true that as this valley had opened, the modern world rushed into it, right? And so all these questions, you know, were coming out like, well, how do you, how do we help this little girl who has such a, a, a an interest, such a passion for learning, um, and working with her parents and doing it in a way that where she doesn't lose control over her own cultural identity, um, you know, so that they that she can retain control over who she is, um, you know, from a cultural standpoint. So, so these are all the things that started coming around, and 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 we worked with the parents over over yeah nine years to to kind of, you know, be there kind of <laughs> like both parents, so to speak, kind of came together um, to do what we could for these two little girls, Karma and her sister Pemba. And, and uh, it's just been, yeah, the most beautiful, beautiful journey. What are the schools like in Nepal? Because I know you talk a lot about this in the book and it was, you guys kind of went on this hunt to really uh, enhance their lives as you're just describing. And so be- before we, or maybe without giving all the details the way of what happened, I just want to know what the situation, so people can understand the difference between maybe our experiences versus what's happening over there. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, in those villages, there's no access to schools. I mean, that little stone school scratched the surface and maybe grade one. So for any child who wants an outside education, like outside of their village, um, you know, and again, remember that in the village, there's no, not even any books, right? At that time, right? You know, not even any means of getting news or internet or anything. Um, things have changed a little bit now, but um, but at that time, yeah. Besides from the scriptures in their monastery, they, there was no reading or you know, uh, nothing like that. So um, so we we knew that when we went when we left, you know, we had this meeting with the parents and or with the mom because the father was out with the yaks at that time. But um, but when we went away. We, we knew that we had to find a school that was aligned with karma's ethnicity. Right. Because um, in Nepal, Nepal is, they've got many, many different ethnicities all together. And, and in the urban centers, um, they're actually more Hindu and they operate more on this, what they call, you know, this caste system where, um, where people in the mountains are actually deemed on the low end of the caste. So if karma was placed in any government school, there could be rise for severe racial discrimination. 
Um, and plus, you know, we wanted to make sure that her Tibetan, because they're more Tibetan in the mountains, we wanted to make mm-hmm. sure her Tibetan roots were kind of, you know, fostered as well. Right. So, so these were all important things and, and important for her parents. And, and so, um, so that was kind of, you know, one of the things that we were looking at, but, um, but yeah, Nepal, I mean, it is the third poorest country in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathmandu is the most polluted city in the world by air pollution. So it's, it's not like here where you just, okay, let's look at the schools that are available yeah, in my neighborhood. Right. You know? right. There's here a lot it's of- like, you got to register by kindergarten to get in the school you want. Like, it's like a race <laughs> to have these like amazing schools, but the options are very endless. It seems like, are there great options? You know, that's not how this is in Nepal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, things, yeah. things are very different. And, and yeah, to even get karma down because again, it had to be a very safe boarding school and, yeah, and, you know, and she was going to be on, in that school, like living in the school. And, and, you know, I know that, uh, uh, child trafficking, for example, is, is uh, a huge problem over there, right. Kids getting trafficked to India and, and then they're never found again. So, you know, all these things were kind of, you know, we're, things that we were thinking about. And, um, so yeah, is it going to be the right education? Is it going to be culturally right. aligned? Is it going to be safe? Like, you know, it was, yeah. It was, and, and, and Kathmandu, you know, in the Valley, they've got millions of people, right. So it's a bustling sort of, you know, place as well. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to find the right school. I mean, that's a whole nother story, but, right, right. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, we were able to, to finally find the, the best school I think we could have found for her. Yeah. I loved, I loved reading about the dynamic of y'all's relationship with that family and her sister and her, and just what you've learned. What, is there one thing, if you could really nail down one thing that she specifically has taught you that you're walking away with? Could oh you? <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's a, that's a big, I've learned many, many, and my mind has expanded so much through, through those two little girls. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I would have to say it's something to do with kind of what we talked about at the beginning, just seeing somebody for who they trying to see somebody for who they are. Right. Um, kind of not bringing my own lens mm. and judgment onto to them because, you know, sometimes we have expectations for people or, or, you know, whether it's a child or, or another person uh, in our lives, but to practice true acceptance of who that person is and then supporting them in, in, in that, right. Not trying to shape them or, or have this expectation, but supporting them in who they are, and allowing them to be who they are. Um, I think that's one of the most, yeah, important things when we're, when we're, uh, when we're talking about, um, yeah, children or, or others in our lives. I think that's such a difficult thing in a, in a relationship dynamic in general, because we all come to relationships with our own stuff, if you want to call Mm. it that. But like, I I find myself in my relationships projecting a lot of like, no, you have to be this way because it's what I need. Or, you know what I'm saying? And like, that isn't really fair to allowing a person to thrive on their own journey and exactly be who they are or anything like that. Right, right. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's almost sometimes, and we almost sometimes we do it out of love sometimes too, right? Exactly. Because we think, oh, this is the best for that. We know the or, best, right. Yeah, we know, or, or especially for a child, if it's your own child, even like, you know, oh, I know the best for you, or this is the totally. best way. But it's like, is that the best way? You know, right. maybe that's the best way for you, but maybe that's not the best way for them. Maybe right. they're a totally different person. Right, right. You know? right. So, <laughs> yeah, what a good, that's a great lesson to, to get out of um, being around children specifically. I think. Um, so can you tell people where they could possibly go help with the schooling system or is there anything that we can do from a very privileged country to go help out? For sure. Yeah, no, there, so the school that, that Karma and her sister ended up getting into, um, in Nepal is called the Sri Mangaldip, uh, school for Himalayan children, SMD school for Himalayan children. And the website is just himalayanchildren.org. Um, and they have 500 kids all from the mountain. They call they call them the lost children of the Himalaya, because they're in these similar places to where Karma is from. Um, just like these really really far out villages that are just so far out that they just get forgotten about. Um, and so that was the, actually the founder of the school. He's he fled Tibet in the 50s. He's a Tibetan Lama, uh, high ranking uh, monk, and um, and he started this school specifically to help these children. Um, so that they could then help their own villages. 
So there's kind of like this circular uh, effect, right? So that would be one way. I know that they're constantly looking for, um, you know, for outside sponsorship for, for students or for kids who are coming in. Um, so that would be, that would be a good way. Um, yeah, no. And, and just, I think, you know, it's good to learn about these different right. ways in the world. Right. I mean, they're, they're all the kids aren't like kids. I mean, I know there's places in North America as well, where, where there's kids struggling to get, you know, access to education, that sort of thing. So it's not, we don't have to go far away, yeah. you know, for that, but, um, wherever we choose to focus on, it's important, I think, to recognize that not all kids are, you know, have equal access, right? And, you know, what can we do to to help with that, I think, is an important thing. Yeah, I think education is so important. I think I grew up with a teacher for a mom, so I think that was <laughs> yeah. presented to me very early. But I also now see all the opportunities that it can open up for people um, that we so often take for granted, I feel. So um, mm. any way that we can help, we want to do that. But, um, okay, well, the book is called A Story of Karma, Finding Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. Michael, thank you so much for sharing all of the insight that you walked away from that climb with today. That was really, it was very fulfilling for me to read the book, but also just to hear about your experiences and what you learned on that journey. Thank you very much, Kelly. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I really appreciate yeah, <laughs> the opportunity to talk with you here and, uh, and, and the work that you're doing as well. And um, yeah, no, it's been a great, uh, great conversation here. And I'm going to link the book in the description of this podcast. You guys, I highly recommend it. We just touched on the things that he experienced on this journey, but um, you can get all the details. And then of course you can find out what happened to Karma and her sister and uh, the, just the way the relationship completely evolved. I love what, reading about that as well. So I'll put the description in the bio. You guys go check it out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson, where we believe everyone has a little velvet and a little edge. Subscribe for more conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. Search Velvet's Edge wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.